You're listening to the Westminster Pulpit, an online ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. For more information, visit us online at www.westpca.com. Today we continue uh, what I began last week. If you weren't with us, I began a new series that will be a topical series of messages considering themes that need emphasis. They're splashed all over Scripture. The understanding of what it means to die, to face judgment, the awful theme of hell, and the wonderful theme of heaven. After death, what? And the believer in Christ, in particular, expect to be true. Last week we were in the book of Job. We'll be moving to a lot of different books in this series. Today, the book of Romans. In the New Testament, Romans chapter 5. This is a chapter that begins with Paul firmly declaring the theme of justification by grace through faith in Christ. He talks about Christ's death for the ungodly, those who were rebelling against God. But most uh, people who would study Romans see that when we come to verse 12, it is a division point in which Paul more or less steps back and takes a wide-angle view of things. I have several multi-volume commentaries on Romans, and surprisingly, more than one of them begins a new volume at verse 12 of chapter 5, not even with the chapter division, because it is seen that... A new summary is being put forth here. So listen as I read. We won't cover every detail of this, but some of the key elements of Romans 5, 12 through 17. Listen to God's Word. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all men because all sinned. For before the law was given... Sin was in the world, but sin is not taken into account where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who was a pattern of the one to come. But the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of One man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Again, the gift of God is not like the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation. But the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if By the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man. How much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? This is God's holy word to be respected, for it is truly God's own mind revealed 
unique and infallible as truth for man. I understand that it's a relatively common practice in the theater that in opening a Broadway musical or any new play of a major sort, quite often that show does not open right away on the big stage of Broadway in New York. Actually, the practice is followed where it might open in a city like Boston or St. Louis or some other place where the show, in a sense, goes on trial and appears in a less conspicuous city before critics who are not the noted critics of the whole land who mainly live in New York. And while it's undergoing this initial kind of preview run, a show can have its dialogue adjusted, songs might be cut, new songs might even be written. It's quite interesting to study, for example, the musicals of Rodgers and Hammerstein from the 50s and so on and see how whole new songs were taken and put in or taken out in that time period. And if the show is going to be a flop, at least it flops a little more quietly somewhere in the hinterlands instead of right in the the main bright lights of Broadway. And so classic shows you might know like My Fair Lady or Sound of Music or Phantom of the Opera and others had inconspicuous openings somewhere else before they hit the theatrical big time in either New York or London or a main center like that. Well, the reality of death made a debut also. And you need to know and always keep in mind where that debut occurred and how. When God first made man and woman in the Garden of Eden, as Scripture reveals the mysteries without giving us all the scientific detail, it gives us the primal facts, it is clear that He did not create them to die. They evidently had biological and spiritual potential to live in an unending, delightful fellowship with their Creator. But grim death made an entrance, not off somewhere in a hidden corner and then slowly crept into a bigger platform. It really appeared right on what we might call center stage of the Bible's creation drama, right in the heart of Eden. Genesis 2 and 3 reports that death's debut was instantaneously known and understood by the man and the woman, and it had effects on every man and woman living after Adam and Eve as it radically affected all people from the time of its opening bow on history stage. You may or may not have seen a popular movie called Forrest Gump. Forrest uh, delivers many little tidbits of folk wisdom in that movie. And one of Forrest Gump's well-known lines is, My mama says, dying is just a part of living. Well, that statement is rather appealing as a piece of folk philosophy. But as biblical wisdom and understanding, it is absolutely wrong. Death is not a natural companion to life. God did not make it that way. Death is shown to us in the Scripture to be an alien invader, bursting into the middle of paradise with all the subtlety 
of an atomic bomb blast that leaves its nuclear winter effect for generations and generations to come. Death is the separation of the body and the soul, and it comes forth in Genesis not as the way things naturally are, but as God's decisive judgment upon human sin. Now, Romans 5, 12 and following is one of the places where the New Testament steps back to take a little bit of a bird's eye view of the whole panorama of how did things get to be where they are as Paul is writing about them. And he goes all the way back to the creation to see that. He pictures Adam, the real man of history, as the one who, by a choice, a free choice, but a sinful choice, brought death upon us all. And we, deciding along with him, even though we were not yet born, but deciding with him because our minds and our spirits are exactly like his and choose the same things every day, we chose death together in Adam. And then Paul also pictured Jesus Christ, the God-man in history, who brings the gift of eternal life. And he brings that by grace, unmerited favor, to affect many people as well. We're trying to consider in some logically constructed way here over several weeks the role that death has in the biblical perspective. And Romans 5, 12 to 17 is a very significant text as it tells us that death became an inescapable reality for every person descended from Adam and Eve. And it tells us right alongside that that eternal life becomes a gift received by many people who belong to Christ. So it's vital for you to understand that either you remain dead in Adam by birth and descendancy from him, spiritually dead that is, or you are today already, even while you live on this planet before your body would die, you are alive in Jesus Christ. I first ask you to give consideration to Romans 5.12 on the topic of human solidarity with death through Adam. We belong to this man, Adam. We are his lineal descendants. The Bible would have us understand that every person who ever lived is a lineal descendant of the first man and the first woman. And remember, we're asking the question here, where did death come from? What was its origin? What was its entrance point in relation to to mankind. People would like to discuss, well, did uh, any plants die before the sin of Adam? Did animals die before the sin of Adam? And there are those who would say, absolutely not. It could not have been. Others, and a lot depends on how you view the days of creation and so on. Those aren't questions I'm going to try to settle at all today. Would say, well, of course, plants died microorganisms die, flies live how long? I don't know. Some insects live a day. Things died before Adam, probably. But man didn't die, and man was not made to die before this epical event that Genesis portrays. Now, of course, there are many who don't take that viewpoint, and theirs is entirely a materialistic way of looking at things, And the materialistic viewpoint would side with Forrest Gump to say that death is just a part of the essence of biological life. 
If you're going to live, you have to die, in other words. One early scientist wrote this, death has always been for humans the logical and natural consequence of their existence. Everything has an end. This is a hard law, but it is the law. That's the materialistic view. In those terms, death is just another event in the so-called circle of life. Your body dies and becomes fertilizer for daisies to grow. Well, there actually are scientists who step apart from that materialistic view, and they would say to themselves, and there are actually a number of them around today, looking deep into the issues of biological life and what it is and why it is, and, and they would say, you know, there's a kind of mystery here. We really don't think it's all that improbable that a human body could have lived if it were in a more germ-free environment for the kinds of centuries that the Bible says early uh, generations of men lived, 700, 900 years. That doesn't seem impossible. In fact, they would say, we don't actually know a clear cause for what makes death a necessity at some point for a complex organism like man. The heart pumps and beats for 85, 95, 103 years, and then it stops. Why is that? Why doesn't it do it for 300 years? There really is no necessary reason. Some honest biologists would say why we can see that an organism has to die. It's a mystery. It's good when scientists can admit there actually are mysteries. Well, when we turn to Scripture's creation account, we find man having the breath of God in him, made in the image of God in a unique way. I talked a number of months ago about what that image of God means. And, of course, there are millions of people who completely reject the whole cosmology of Genesis. They say, what, what nonsense, that's just fairy tales. It, it doesn't mean anything. It's a harmless myth. But if you would disagree with that and believe that Genesis is the inerrant Word of God and it is truth to be reckoned with, not a scientific textbook, but truth statements, your logic still has to ask yourself, since God made man in His likeness and He, he put His breath in us, He made us unique, He wanted us to re- correspond with Him and be able to pray and be able to worship and be, in a sense, God's own companion, and God can't die, so if we're in any sense unique the way God is unique, then why do we die? Did God leave some kind of a flaw in us, like the pot, the, a finely made porcelain pot that comes out of the oven and, and is seen to have a fatal crack across the middle of it, and its, its beauty and its use and its value are ruined because of a crack? Is that what happened? God made us like Himself, but He left a crack in? Or maybe saying the question another way, if we were made to be like God, why must we die as if we were merely a a stalk of corn across the road here, or a centipede, or a cocker spaniel? Why must we die if we are God-like creatures? Well, Romans 5.12 is trying to answer that question. Sin entered the world through one man, and death came by sin, through sin. And in this way, death came to all men, for all had sinned. Adam, one man, was the representative of all men. And here is a New Testament reiteration of a Genesis principle that says death was not a natural thing, 
It wasn't a crack left in the creation by God's negligence. It was a direct result of a free will choice made by man. Adam made it first. We make it with him all the time, every day. Death wasn't God's desire at all. It was man's chosen consequence for sin. Now, we believe death did not and could not have touched Adam before his deliberate disobedience against God. Genesis gives us no idea how long Adam and Eve might have lived in years or months or whatever before they sinned, before what we call the fall. It could have been centuries for all we know. But here in a chosen act came the ultimate horrifying judgment upon sin. Genesis 2.17 warned it. This didn't come without God's warning. The Lord had said regarding a particular tree, singling out an act in which he said, I will be God, you will be man, and one way we will find this out is by you respecting something that I ask you not to do, taking the fruit of the tree of life or the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And in Genesis 2.17, he warned on the day you eat of it, you will surely die. It will happen. Count on it. Now, there are many other passages of the Scripture that look back on Genesis and regard Genesis as a historical happening. They regard Adam and Eve. Jesus himself regarded Adam and Eve as historical people, not as myths. And the historical fall of Adam, we believe, and Scripture is teaching here in this statement of Romans 5.12, was something that affected 100% of human history from that day forward. It was printed in a 17th century reading book for children called the New England Primer, one of the first educational books circulated in the United States. You can find examples of this, I guess, in some old libraries today. The New England Primer taught children the, the basics of reading and so on, and it had uh, little sections of the letters of the alphabet with a, a memorable sentence, a poetic sentence tied to each letter of the alphabet. And for A, with a big fancy curly Q A, the sentence was, in Adam's fall, we died all. In Adam's fall, we died all. Little children were taught that truth of the Scripture and truth of Genesis. For the Bible teaches that God deals with mankind in terms of two representative heads. The theologian sometimes calls them a federal head, the idea of them being a representative for many. Adam was our federal head so that his action was my action, the same way that if the U.S. ambassador to Japan today signs a treaty with Japan in the name of the United States, I sign the treaty through his signature. I, as a citizen of the United States, am in at least some small way bound by a treaty signed by an authorized representative. Now, Adam was told if he obeyed God, there would be wonderful benefits. He would continue in this blessed state he was in, but if he disobeyed, he would get unnamed calamity. On the day you eat of it, you will surely die. I don't know if God spelled out what death was or if Adam could conceive of what death was unless perhaps he had seen animals die and understood what that was. But sin and death took up residence, and you say, why was that? Well, simply because we repeat the things that Adam did every day. He had our nature, and if the first man had been Fred or Robert or Michael, 
he would have done the same thing. If the first woman had not been Eve but had been Margaret or Susan or Linda, she would have done the same thing. In Adam's fall, we sinned all. And some people say, how is that fair? How is it fair for the disobedience of one to be imputed, passed on to me? In one sense, at the fairness level, I guess that's an unanswerable question. But I'll ask you, and nobody likes it when you answer a question with a question, but I'll do that. How is it fair for the righteousness of Jesus Christ to be imputed to you? And if you want the latter, you must accept the validity of the former. In Adam's fall, we sinned all. We have a human solidarity with death in Adam. Now, secondly, you just unreal that a little more and think about the disaster of death's reign over mankind. Universal sin brings universal death. It's as if it's, it, Paul is saying here in Romans 5, sin opened the door and in rushed death. You know, nobody quite knew what was on the other side of the door until the door was opened and a horrible thing came in. And Paul says in verse 14 of our text, death then reigned. It took over. It exerted power and sat on a throne like a foreign tyrant who invaded a country and overnight all of a sudden could change all the laws of the country and rewrite everything that governed all of the ways of the citizens of that country. Believe me, as horrible as we've seen tyrannies and kings and dictators rule in our lives, you think of Saddam Hussein, older ones think of Hitler. Joseph Stalin is probably responsible for the deaths of more people even than Hitler in the 20th century. Probably more people died because of Joseph Stalin, perhaps, than any other one individual in the history of the world. You could go back and name all the worst people that ever lived and brought their terror, their brutality, their widespread genocide upon many, many people, and you could lump them all together, and they, as individuals or as a collective, don't have a more cruel reign than the reign of death. The relational effects, the spiritual effects, the bodily effects of death you, you sort of lump them all together and you come up with something that we might call total death. Not just a body that is physically dead, but a soul that is consigned to exist apart from God. Now, some of the effects of this total death are spelled out if you want to go back to Genesis. Let me just uh, give you a few sentences of refresher with some of the things we saw when we studied Genesis months ago. Genesis 3.17 says that God's curse set loose the difficulty of making a living. Well, that's a lot more complex than it sounds like. It's not just the idea that a farmer is going to have weeds and droughts to deal with. I think the Bible's suggesting all the, the pains and failures of, of simply existing in this world are spun out from sin. All the problems of labor and management, all the pains of unemployment, of e- economic injustice that the poor can't rise above a certain station in life to get a decent job or build up their lives very easily. All the things that make it so hard just to live come from the sin of Eden. And then came strife, too, strife between the husband and wife. 
the sons of Adam clashing with each other so that one murdered the other. And then immediately the further generations are spelled out there in Genesis. And you read about warfare, one against the other, and great warriors boasting against each other and harming other people and tyrannizing people. The, the pain of childbirth. The decline of your physical body. Certainly everything that we go to hospitals and doctors for, and you know what the biggest industry in Lancaster County is, don't you? It's Lancaster General Hospital, the biggest employer. The biggest employer is dealing with the effects of sin and death and the fact that our hip joints decay and our memory cells fall apart and cataracts grow in our eyes, and pretty soon the day comes when our body simply will not work anymore. And death has a social dimension. All the joyful relationships we have come to a terminus point. We have that relationship no longer. The possibility of of saying I'm sorry or rebuilding or starting over with somebody comes to an end. But then on top of all those effects, all those downward spiraling things are the spiritual effects and the realization that death is actually a divine judgment. God is saying, because you choose to sin, because you choose to rebel, I will let you have the fruit of rebellion, and you will sever this wonderful fellowship that I desired to have with you, and you will sever it unendingly. The separation between the human body and the human soul is actually the worst effect of death. The day on which you do this, you will surely die. Some people point out, well, Adam lived to be a very, very ripe old age, many centuries old. He didn't fall over in his tracks that day. But ladies and gentlemen, we believe the teaching of the Scripture is that his spiritual perfect union with God was ruined that day and remained ruined throughout the centuries that Adam lived until his mortal body did go into the ground. And the spiritual effect of death is nothing less than a descent to hell. I'm going to speak about that terribly unpopular subject. I'll warn you, don't come in the month of November if you can't stand it. November's going to be a warm month around here. It really is. Hell is much mocked, much derided, but in its essence, it is nothing but the unrelieved logical goal of death that is ultimate separation from God. Separation that is unending, that is absolute and unchangeable. And as such, it has to be considered. Well, that's some of the downward spiral of effects that come from death. And this, as I know, sounds like a pretty gloomy message, doesn't it? To talk about the origin of death and its inevitable effects on everybody, not too cheerful for a summer morning. But it's essential to draw this diagnosis so you would begin to see the worldwide dimensions of things here that include you. But now today in the third place, I want to speak about what remains in our text of Romans 5, and that is namely every believer's solidarity with lasting life in Jesus Christ. You see, I've tried to show you that if the grace of God had not stepped in to somehow interrupt and make an alternative, physical, spiritual, eternal, social death, would have been the final lot of every man and woman ever born. But thank God, His grace did intervene. 
That's the gospel, you know. God did intervene. The Puritan writer Thomas Goodwin, in fact, did it this way in the terminology of Romans 5. He said, in God's sight, there really are only two men in all of human history. Adam and Jesus Christ. For these two have all the others following after them in one great parade or the other. You see, we are taught that Christ is as much, in fact more so, a federal head on behalf of others as Adam was. And Romans 5 and many other passages argue that if you are in Jesus Christ and He lives in you by grace through faith you have a radically changed position with God in relation to death. I want you to notice the use of the phrase, how much more, two times in the text I read. It's in verses 15 and 17. Paul said this, if death could force the whole mass of human beings into a a grim parade running from God and, and marching in lockstep after Adam, how much more... Can the power of God bring those who trust in Christ into a different procession, turning them around 180 degrees and leading them back to God again? We read here of the opposition. One man, Adam. One man, Jesus Christ. They're set in opposition. They're similar, but they're very different, especially in the end results of their actions. And it's ironic that with Jesus Christ, what he had to do to make things different was to die. He had to accept, he who was not subject to it, who was not under Adam's penalty, had to come and accept as a substitute for many that penalty from Eden and die a man's death. But in so doing, because who he, of who he was, he turned everything around for those who belonged to him. And just as it said, death reigned over us, do you notice that verse 17 says, we now can reign in life because of Christ? Yes, a Christian's physical body still dies. That's not an inconsequential thing. That portion of the penalty of death cannot be avoided. However, the total death of our soul and separation from God in eternity has been canceled by our trust in the blood of Christ shed for us. And we are restored to that embrace of God the Father even while we're still in this world. Romans 8 verse 10, another passage in Romans, summarizes this exact thing. If Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin. You will die, Christian, Romans 8.10 says, yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. Notice how Paul also puts in opposition the gift that Christ offers and the penalty of the trespass or sin. He says here a couple times, the the gift is not like the trespass. The trespass, in in a manner of speaking, put all of humanity in the back seat of Adam's car And Adam drove the car off the road into the gully and it flipped over five times and landed on its roof. I know it doesn't say that, but just to illustrate. We were all in the back seat of Adam's car when it went in the ditch and turned over. But some are in Christ. 
And we are taken in a very different destination because of Christ. His gift makes it all different. Notice one of the differences is that Adam's sin included everybody without exception. But Romans 5.15 says Christ's gift of life will overflow to the many. Now, many indicates a group that is somewhat less than everybody. I could state to you that there are 400 people in this room this morning approximately, and many of them are female. I've just differentiated the group, haven't I? I've said something about the number of all of you, but many of you are female, not all of you are. That's what this is saying. Romans 5.17 further differentiates something about who these many people are, saying they are those who receive... God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness. What do you have to do with a gift? You have to receive it. It, doesn't, it isn't a gift if it's sitting on the shelf somewhere or in somebody's closet. It's your gift when you receive it and you open it. Another way we could differentiate these two groups between all who have been lost towards death in Adam and many who have life in Christ, is this. One group receives what is called a dreadful wage that they've earned while the others are getting a gift, and you can't earn a gift. Again, Romans 6.23 says, the wage of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Those who have opened the gift have a solidarity belonging to Christ and His lasting life. 1 Corinthians 15.44 summarizes it this way, saying, The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last, Adam, became a life-giving spirit. Today, you are either helplessly and hopelessly caught up in Adam's procession that originally had every human being in it, And you're marching in lockstep after Adam like a zombie towards separation from God in eternal death. Or, isn't it a blessed thing that I could say or? You have joined. You have joined that many people who have consciously been transferred by God's act of grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, we do have to pass through physical death. That's the bad news. We still have to die. Our bodies have to be put away. We stop breathing on this earth as far as this existence is concerned. But the Scripture says for the believer, the sting of that has been neutralized. The spiritual part of it is no longer true. We are not extinguished spiritually from the presence of God. And in fact... What lies beyond us because of Christ is so much better and so much to be desired. Paul says, why, it's better by far than what I have now. And in fact, in Philippians, he can only summarize it by saying, it is gain. No matter how good my life is now, it is gain to depart and be with Christ. Death made its debut as our enemy. Death is a judgment of God. But we have another choice ahead of us. And many of you, I'm thankful to know, have already exercised it. What are you going to do? 
about the choice of death or life. You can spend your energy in this lifetime being part of the death-denying culture of this world that belongs to Adam and doesn't know any better and emphasizes that youthfulness is the great ideal, that pursuing vigorous health of the body is the key to human life, and just refuse to think about what's after. And you know many people who, that's the way they are, right? Death comes up, they walk out of the room. They won't think about it because they're part of the death-denying culture that imagines they can always continue somehow as they are. Or you can join the death-defying family of Jesus Christ. Because the Son of God died for you and placed Himself under the judgment of His Father on behalf of many, many people, death's terrifying judgment sting was removed for those many who received that marvelous gift. A death that happens when you are in Christ is only entrance into glory. Glory, a word that encompasses something beyond your imagination. For the Christian, physical death marks your debut, your debut into everlasting, abundant life that Jesus Christ secured for you. Our Father, as we continue to consider these things, there are mysteries here that are long and wide and high and deep. We are bound to go by what your Scripture reveals. I pray, Father, that we would see Christ as the great alternative. That any today who may simply be going along and drifting in the path of this world may run to Christ and cling to Him as the one way to cross over into life. Amen. Let's sing the first and last verses of the hymn.